everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Anirudh Singh. Our guest today is Philip Klein, CEO and co-founder of Finlink. Finlink aims to bring the ease and elegance of consumer banking to corporate treasuries with ERP-native apps and bank APIs that create a data-rich, real-time global infrastructure that empowers finance and treasury professionals. As the architect of the business, Philip takes great care in ensuring that the talent and diversity within the company, extensive expertise in technology and finance, laser focus on customer satisfaction, and a constant drive for innovation are the cornerstone for Finlink's vision of creating solutions that empower today's corporate treasurer. Prior to co-founding Finlink, Philip led the digital banking practice at Deloitte Consulting, where he was one of the youngest practice leaders in recent history. In today's episode, we discuss Philip leaving a career in consulting to found Finlink with his brother, the evolution of corporate treasury, defining culture early on in a global company, building a great company, and more. Hope you enjoy the show. So hi, Philip, and thank you so much for joining us on the show today. How are you doing today? Where are you calling in from? Yeah, thanks, Anirudh. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. I'm calling in from Southern California. Just got back uh, from a work trip to New York where I visited some of the team. Sounds great. And uh, we'll talk more about the team and your work at Finlink in a second. But I was hoping that we, we could start by introducing yourself to our listeners and providing an overview of your career prior to joining Finlink. Yeah, sure. Um, where to start? So I'm originally from the UK. I'm now based in uh, Southern California, traveling a bit again. Now things are opening back up. But yeah, I started off my career. I was actually I did an internship at City where I was a treasury trader. So funny enough, that was actually my first foray into, into Treasury. And then actually I started properly on the uh, principal strategies desk at Morgan Stanley, which was, you know, trading off their own books, you know, which was a very exciting experience. Maybe word exciting isn't the best word, but yeah, I sort of went through 2007, eight doing that, uh, which was quite eye-opening. Got a little bit disillusioned by the whole industry. You know, sort of in that, um, I suppose in that, kind of cadre of people that grew up sort of reading lies poker and wanted to be a, a trader, which happened, but then <laughs> not sure if it's what I actually wanted to do. So I got a bit disillusioned by it all and sort of was looking for, for what I wanted. And I fe- sort of fell into this management consulting. And it's not something actually I'd ever really looked into, but I think it was just really me. It just really kind of hit all the aspects of kind of business, creativity, technology, so yeah, I, so I fell into that in Deloitte Consulting and then moved, it was about 2012 to the US with Deloitte Consulting. Yeah, and then just really sort of grew my career there. I think I traveled to about 30 different states, to so many different clients, all within financial services, really the full spectrum of uh, everything from wealth management to retail banking, to capital markets, to transaction banking, and even even some, uh, some private equity stuff. And then, um, yeah, kind of, sort of got to the end of what I wanted to do there, got my green card and then, you know, decided now was the time to really start my venture. And um, yeah, we can get into this next bit, but so happened my co-founder was my brother who lived in Singapore. So we started talking and uh, things, yeah, just very, uh, very much took off very quickly. It seems like a pretty big switch from, uh, you know, over a decade in banking and, and consulting. And obviously those are large multinational companies and then switching to becoming a co-founder and a CEO of a much smaller, much more rapidly growing company. How was it making that switch for you? Yeah, it's a great question. I, mean, I think throughout my life, I've always been very entrepreneurial. So I remember sort of from back in the day where you had the, the equivalent like lemonade stand to, you know, we sold, uh, I had a friend, me and him sold revisions, revision guides at school. And then 
actually created one of the first ever apps in London for guest list clubbing. It was called uh, like called guest list clubbing with like T three magazine. But yeah, sort of never really pursued that, uh, which I think you know could have been really successful at. But he sort of sort of fell back into the institutional world of, of Morgan Stanley, etc. But what I found with uh, you know sort of these consulting firms is it's really like a platform to you know I don't know if it's a great word, but intrapreneur. You know, you can really sort of be very entrepreneurial within this vast ecosystem of these global uh, sort of big consulting companies. So I actually created a few businesses within when I was in Deloitte. One was art and finance, which was like the intersection of sort of art, tangible uh, assets and uh, in wealth management around that. And then also went through the um, the whole transformation of wealth management with robo-advisors. So, wrote, you know, wrote one of the first papers on sort of robo-advisors, the, the uh, you know, the transformation of that industry, which, you know, is now just sort of digital, just, you know, broadly just digital with wealth, but really start off with robo-advisors. So built um, the practice there with, with one of the senior partners, which is great. So, you know, I feel like any sort of uh, position you have in these more institutional companies, you can really still sort of forge a path that's quite entrepreneurial. You know, it's always, it's always a little bit cookie cutter. So you've sort of got to push on the edges a bit, but you can, I think you can do quite a lot within these, uh, in these places. So for me, it was sort of less, it wasn't a hard transition, I think. Sort of, I've always done sort of things on the side that have been quite entrepreneurial. I think what's harder is not having your regular paycheck and the, uh, the safety and the security, right? And you're going off and uh, maybe it's taking risks, right? But it's just more, a lot more uncertain, which is always you know, hard to, to deal with when you're in the midst of it. For which office you were at, at Deloitte? Yeah, I was, yeah. Well, I did this, the probably not sensible thing of basing myself out of New York, which was expensive, but then traveling to, and then traveling to all the states where it wasn't expensive uh, to live. So yeah, I was based out of, uh, of the uh, New York office. Really small world, Philip. I was at Deloitte from 2016 to 2018, and I very distinctly remember a presentation from the Monitor Deloitte team on the intersection of arts and finance. So possible that we had crossed paths a little while ago. That's really cool. Yeah, I mean, there's so many, uh, I think, great people that sort of come in and out. But like, like, you know, it's quite a vast ecosystem, right? So it gives you the ability to focus where you want. So yeah, good. It's cool that we uh, we touched you with some art and finance while you were there. Good time now to switch to uh, your career at Finlink. So can you talk a little bit about what Finlink does? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a lot to unpack. I think, you know, that maybe take it like the fintech level, right? Just that. And I think there's, I think it's Peter Till actually says this, right? There's like the graph of, you know, you've got your X axis, which is, you know, boring to exciting, and then your Y axis, which is sort of simple to complex. And I think a lot of, you know, people sort of found things in that more simple, exciting sort of world. And, you know, I would say in the fintech, you know, that's sort of your digital lending and, you know, things that, you know, people are just familiar with in their, you know, throughout their current lives, right? And then you get sort of the, well, not fintech, but the SpaceXs of the world, right, which are the exciting complex. And then you get corporate banking, which is your boring complex. So it's sort of the area that, you know, you don't see as many sort of MBAs or, or people who are coming out founding businesses here because you need to sort of 10, 10 plus years experience in this, uh, in this world to really understand it, right? It's not something you can be familiar with just, just in your personal life. So you sort of see like most companies that you know people are founding are around the sort of more simple exciting end of the spectrum right but the actual big market opportunity is always on the boring complex end of the, the spectrum right so luckily my brother 
Peter, who's based in Singapore, he'd been in this uh, world of, you know, it's called many things, right? And this is another <laughs> complex thing. It's transaction banking, treasury, cash management, corporate banking. There's so many names and it's sort of like a bit of a gray area between, you know, among all those, uh, those parts. But he'd really spent his entire career very, very deep in corporate cash management, treasury and bank connectivity. So he kind of become really a world expert, you know, if not the world expert in, in the space. But, you know, hadn't really leveraged that into a business. You know, he was really working, uh, working with a few different uh, banks and uh, clients throughout his career. And then, you know, I sort of had been through transaction banking from the consulting side of things. And, you know, my experience was really around a business strategy, sales, marketing, you know, be able to scale a business, you know, all these sort of aspects, you know, you learn in, uh, in consulting. So sort of coming together, we realized we had very different skill sets, but were incredibly actually complementary, which is something we never, uh, never realized until we started speaking with each other and working together a bit. So it's sort of two, I suppose, two major sort of trends that were happening, which really we, we picked up on. So one was open banking. So people are more familiar with open banking. You know, in Europe, it's this regulatory-led initiative, PSD2. And, you know, the regulators are driving this, and it's very much in the consumer world, you know, it's being driven. But, uh, you know, for regulation to drive it, things happen very slowly. So you're, you're seeing sort of very slow builds out of these APIs, these, these offerings that the banks open themselves up, very low-value data. And then in the rest of the world, there wasn't any regulation. So you had like Yodley and then Plaid came in and I don't know how they got away with it, but somehow Plaid sort of built the, the US infrastructure through screen scraping and then sort of retroactively backed into to the APIs. And it's similar in Asia, right? So there's no real regulation driving it. And this was just in the consumer world. But I think what the banks saw was in the corporate or enterprise world, you know, how do they open themselves up to, you know, large corporations, enterprise, multinational companies? And I think what happened was the banks were like, well, if we don't do it, the other bank's going to do it. But there was no regulation. So the banks just started building out their specifications for these offerings, but, you know, not regulatory driven. So every bank completely different um, standards. So we saw that sort of banks were building out these offerings, but unlike your open banking world, in the consumer space, there is no end solution. So for, you know, for them to go to a, you know, a major you know, Fortune 500 corporation and say, hey, here's, we're opening up so you can get all the real-time availability of the balances on your account, accessible whenever you want, so you can use that money instantly, uh, there was no end solution. So the actual adoption in the industry was virtually zero. Where you see adoption actually is real-time payments with the e-commerce companies. So your Amazons and your Ubers of the world this is integral to their business. So they would spend the millions of dollars to implement this connectivity to their banks to be able to do real-time payments. But virtually every, any other corporation with treasury operations, just uh, virtually zero adoption. And then the other major trend was just corporate treasury technology, just incredibly archaic. I mean, really stuck in like the dark ages. You know, I say now, you know, we're going through a treasury renaissance because it's really been stuck in you know, the, the sort of leading companies, technologies from the end of the 90s, just take years on years to integrate, or you have to pay the big four, like millions of dollars to try and build functionality and implement some sort of connectivity to your banks. So just it was just incredibly uh, archaic. So we said, you know, let's solve both problems. Let's actually build so you know, very contemporary consumer quality, but something app-based, an actual app-based system versus a whole system, something on an app basis that fits into the system you already have, your ERP system, 
and then you don't need a new system. So you can adopt it incredibly quickly. And let's pre-integrate all these banks connectivity, these APIs into that already. So if you're, you know, whatever, like a Sony or a, or a Microsoft, you're just literally plugging in something that's 100x better than something you have today. And you're going live in a matter of weeks. And it's real time with your banks. So you've now got real time working capital. So it's really, you know, kind of massive, uh, massive leapfrog from um, what they have today. So maybe I'll pause there because that was probably uh, quite a lot. Great. And I think it would be great if you could expand more upon the treasury renaissance that you've seen. So, you know, where was corporate treasury infrastructure maybe five years before FinLink? Where do you think it is now? And where do you hope to see it go in the next five years? Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, maybe I'll go back a little bit further, maybe sort of like a decade ago. So you know, if you're a, a multinational corporation and, and you're all these companies, right, the backbone of the company is the ERP system, right? The enterprise resource planning system, the system of record, the central database, integrated process data. You know, this is where your accounting's done, logistics, everything, right? It all comes into this central uh, central source. So, you know, what happened was is the SAPs and the oracles of the world, who, you know, who sold these systems, they really underinvested in treasury and cash management. So the functionality was just virtually non-existent in these systems. So most corporations were using Excel. And then sort of what happened was you had this SaaS revolution, right? These SaaS companies. So I always say, look, you know, would Salesforce be where they were today if SAP and Oracle had a great CRM already integrated? I mean, maybe not, but there wasn't, right? So sort of, you know, an analog to the treasury world. You know, then you had the... Uh, sort of birth of the equivalent of a Salesforce, but in treasury, right? These SaaS systems to do all your treasury and cash functionality. So if you're like a CIO or a CFO of a, of a major corporation, you sort of had two choices, right? You could either say, well, you know, I want a strict mandate that we do everything inside our ERP system, because then that's the whole raising doctor of an ERP system, one place for integrated data and process. So I keep that, but then I have to go and invest, you know, millions, to go and build it in there, right? Whether that's big four or contractors or whatever it is. Or I believe sort of these treasury management systems and what they're saying, right? These TMS systems. And, you know, they're telling me, you know, you can be live in six months and we have everything you need and it's only a few hundred thousand dollars, et cetera. So, you know, some people chose that route, right? They would treasury management system. But there's sort of the secrets out a bit now where it's never integrated. You know, you speak to, I speak to a lot of treasurers and the sort of average quote is seven years later, and my treasury management system is still less than 25% integrated to my ERP system. And now I've outgrown it and I've got to buy another one, right? So, so, so there was sort of this SaaS revolution right, where people wanted to move towards this. But I think it's just another, you know, it's an extra system you don't need, more band-aids, more layers. It just causes more problems. And then you're spending a never-ending sum of money to continue to try and integrate it to your ERP, because the ERP is the ocean of data. I mean, this is where everything is. And you've already spent tens of millions doing it there, right? Setting up all your data, your processes, your workflow, your security, your authorizations is already there. So why aren't you just leveraging it in there and keeping everything fully integrated? You know, or, or like I said, right, they would go and do it inside the ERP systems like uh, SAP and Oracle. So now we're sort of at this next stage, right, which I really call the now the treasury renaissance, which is now we solve all the problems. Right, which is, you know, the legacy bank connectivity, which also existed as part of this, right, was a bank statement. So I don't know if you remember, you used to get like a bank statement in your mail every month, and then you would know the cash you have in your account. This is literally what's happening in the, uh, 
you know, some of the greatest brand companies in the world, they're waiting for a bank statement to come in and they're trying to reconcile a bank statement into their accounting and then see how much cash they have. I mean, it's actually, it's, it's quite shocking. So now with the bank uh, technology that exists, the APIs through the open banking, you can directly embed them into these ERP systems. So now you're just refreshing your screen and you're instantly seeing fully you know, end-to-end encrypted all the availability you have at your banks. Make, you know, if you want to make payments, status of payments, the visibility of your cash to invest, absolutely it's sort of everything, right? So now you're solving, number one, you're going from you know, all this manual process to trapped cash in your accounts because you can't get any visibility to now getting instant visibility of everything. 24-7, you're in control whenever you want it. You know, you're getting a contemporary system that's as good, in, good as you, in your consumer life, right? Uh, an amazing user experience. And everything's fully inside your system. So you're just maximizing the value of what you have. You're not investing in a whole other system. And you're leveraging all the security, the authorizations, the process of what you have today. So everything's totally uh, integrated. So sort of all these links, you know, along the chain, which cause more problems, we're just taking them all out. And now it's just corporate ERP system communicating directly with all their banks in real time. And they're seeing everything inside the system where they already have the password with, you know, a really amazing uh, user experience. But could you talk a little bit about how this process becomes more complex when you're working with international payments as opposed to within one country? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you can imagine like in your consumer life, right, maybe you have a couple of banks and you, you log on to e-banking to manage that, right? Because you don't really have a system of record in your consumer life, right? So for a multinational company, I mean, they could have anywhere from 50 to 100 different banks around the world, you know, hundreds or even thousands of different accounts, dozens of currencies, right? And then you've got tens and tens of people in all these different, you know, doing payables, receivables, treasury, reconciliation. So there's just a ton of complexity. Because, you know, every bank's, you know, how you engage every bank's different. I mean, a lot of corporates today as well don't even have bank connectivity. So they've literally got tens of people logging on with security tokens to e-banking platforms, copying payment messages out of their ERP system into an e-banking platform. I mean, it's just crazy, you know, the amount of fraud risk there is it's just, it's, again, quite shocking. So there's just a ton of complexity for these uh, multinational companies, right? Because you've got this, this system of record, this ledger, which has to be accurate. Right. And then you've got, like I said, you've got thousands of accounts and all these banks and uh, currencies. And then you're doing multiple types of things. Right. You're making payments, you're accepting payments, you're making investments, you know, you're forecasting, managing the cash FX. So just there's a lot going on. Right. And when you first approached banks, corporate treasury teams, did you find that they were reluctant to kind of evolve or were they really excited and desperately looking for a product like this? Yeah, I think all these things, it's always a bit of a on a continuum. Right. So. You know, who we really love to speak to are the forward thinkers, you know, the treasurers, the assistant treasurers, the CFOs, you know, the IT heads, you really get it, right? They understand what real-time work and capital means. I think, you know, some of the problem with this industry is there's been a lot of noise that's been created by a lot of companies, and it's, it's not really accurate. You know, I think this is some of, the, some of the problems. So you have a lot of companies that are quite scarred by things they've been promised and just hasn't been delivered on. So it's very, you know, we're already dealing with a quite a risk-averse industry, you know, rightly so, right? I mean, these are the individuals who are, who are managing the cash uh, of the company. Um, they're very sceptical. I think sort of rightly so, right, based on what they've uh, been through. So you know, for us, it's just showing that we deliver. 
and we deliver on what we say we can deliver on, which is already just a, just a massive differentiator in this industry, where I think, you know, people just massively overpromise and just massively <laughs> under deliver. So I think where we've had, you know, initial success with some of our major uh, sort of Fortune 500 clients, you know, they've, you know, word of mouth is always the best type of marketing, right? So I think word of mouth is has got around quite fast that we do deliver on on this sort of future that, you know, that we talk about, but we deliver on it today, which is, again, radically different from um, what we've seen. So you get sort of the, the corporations who might not even have bank connectivity day who are looking for a solution. I mean, here it's really a no-brainer uh, to go with us. And then you have companies that might have spent already millions implementing what they have today. So it's quite tough to then sort of say, okay, maybe this wasn't what we should have done. We need to switch. So, you know, again, it goes to our model, which is sort of app-based. And we're the only company as well that can even do a pilot. I mean, no other company do a pilot because you've got to spend a million dollars to implement the system. So with us, you know, it's it's actually quite self-serve to even install the applications. So we can actually just with one app, say real-time balance visibility in your existing system with one bank, you can actually go live in under a month which is very, you know, a few hours of effort. I mean, the month is because of just the bureaucracy of a major company, but really in the hours of effort, you know, you can, you can go live. So, you know, if you want to see it to believe it, it's like, okay, we'll show you. Switching topics a little bit now towards team culture, and you had hinted at your brother uh, living in Singapore. Can you talk a little bit about the international footprint of Finlink and how it has been building a company that's spread all around the world? Yeah, so <laughs> I would say building a, a company that needs to be global, you know, because our clients are obviously multinational companies, which, you know, not only are all around the world, but do business all around the world. And obviously the banks as well, right? You know, the, the biggest banks in the world, they're also everywhere. So I don't know if I would recommend it or not, but building a global company that's uh, bootstrapped from the early days, you don't get a lot of sleep. But it's very exciting. I mean, really, really exciting. And you know, what we sort of, we just built everything from first principles. So, you know, in Singapore, it's a lot easier with uh, with visas and getting uh, individuals in. So we just looked around the world and we just said, you know, we're just going to handpick the greatest people around the world and we're going to bring them to Singapore to start to start with. So we did that. So I think Singapore, we have like 20 different nationalities alone, just in, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure we're probably the most diverse organization from our side, but for our size, but yeah, we can't hold me to that. But yeah, so we we sort of did it that way, right? And then I think what I found is really important, right, around culture is is actually values. So, you know, I'll give you an example, which is like an Uber. You know, Uber had an incredible mission. I mean, incredible mission, but not strong values. So therefore, you know, people will do whatever to achieve that mission. And I mean, the thing, if you look through sort of civilization and what have been great civilizations or empires, you know, throughout time, they've always had a very strong set of shared values i think you know when those values have eroded is where you've sort of seen the fall of civilizations or so we really set out to say we really need a set of very strong values and actually hiring against those values so hiring you know very sort of very diverse and inclusive team but hiring with the base of people who really share what our values are so we set that out quite early and i mean and these things evolve right i mean they're not always set in stone I mean, I think they do evolve. I don't think to a massive degree, but you know, they do evolve a bit over time. So I think setting those out first, hiring against those and, and, and cultivating that very strongly in the organization is key. I think even more so when you're global, right, and you have teams in different cultural norms uh, around the world. 
And then I think, you know, then it gets the culture, right, which is, I think, very different to the values, but something you cultivate around the values, right? And I think it's it's also appreciating that there are different cultural norms around the world and, and, and how you work with that. You know, we hired a very, uh, a very experienced uh, head of people operations, again, who shared our values, but really understood how we continue to build that culture. And I think your key, which is, Culture is incredibly, incredibly important. So it's something I'm always very, uh, very focused on. Could you expand a little bit on specifically what those values are that you look for when you're hiring someone? Yeah. So one thing I think we talked about, which was, you know, thinking from first principles and not uh, sort of thinking with the crowd. You know, an example of this is, you know, in our world, which is SaaS payments. You know, people go, oh, there's a trillion dollars in SaaS payments. We need to set, you know, start a SaaS payments company. And then they think sort of where they can fit in with SaaS payments and what's the differentiator or where they can plug a gap. And for us, we said, what are the problems and how do you solve them? Right. And how do you solve them thinking with a clean slate, you know, not based on you know, what people have done before necessarily. Then, yeah, we have to sort of speak your truth, which is all about really transparency of communication, but there's sort of everyone's voice matters. I think, you know, what I've seen in my career is, you know, when people sort of get to this executive level, they can get a little bit detached from reality of what's happening. I think it's sort of just human nature that, that that can happen. So I think it's very important to be very much in touch with everyone who's on the ground and what they're doing and what they're seeing. I think risks and issues, you know, if you hire great people, uh, you know, listen to them. They're going to tell you what's up. So I think very much listening and speaking regularly right, to sort of everyone in the company. You know, if we have, yeah, people see concerns or risks or issues, you know, they're raised immediately and we, we deal with them, right? Which has kind of been, you know, as sort of realistic about, about things possible. And then communication down as well, right? So, you know, we're very honest with everyone, uh, you know, about where the business is and probably, you know, you're always going to have problems. I mean, to say you don't have challenges, it's just, just kind of cannot, can, you know, can there ever be reality? So I think always communicating the sort of the good and the bad and how, and I think people want to help. You know, everyone wants to help and they want to do it. So I think being um, sort of realistic with that communication. But maybe I'll pause there. I'll go into to all of them. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. There was a guest on the show a few months back that had said something along the lines of company culture and values are solidified with the first five hires. They need to be formalized at that time. And then if they're not done there, it's very hard to change kind of the momentum that the company gains with whatever culture and values they pick up along the way. Curious if you agree with that, if that's something that you saw uh, during your time. Yeah, I mean, all these things, it's very hard to change things once you have them, right? So, again, like something as, as core as the values of the organization, and that's exactly why your, your colleague you mentioned, you know, we really want to set those early and, and cultivate around them. It's really key. And so let's, let's zoom out a little bit and talk kind of about FinLink overall. Uh, where do you see the company or hope to see the company go in the next one to three years, uh, whether that's about fundraising or traction or global expansion or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I can't give too much away on our, our strategy. But yeah, where do I want to see us? I think, you know, I sort of had what I was saying, right, which is we just want to hire the very best people and just be a great company. I mean, we're really looking to do that. I think that's part of sort of our mission, right? We don't want to just be a good company or average or we really believe that we can transform globally this industry and even beyond and we're really building to do that so we're not sort of building uh you know to just do okay we really want to build some something that's great you know part of that is 
how we want to open up to third parties, right? I think, at, you know, at the moment we're building an end-to-end -end integrated solution for corporates, but we're also building essentially the global aggregator. So if you think sort of what a plaid, plaid has done in the US for consumers, then we're doing a similar thing, obviously that's tr truly API-driven, globally uh, for enterprise. So, you know, so it's about how we really can help, you know, others who want to build great solutions and solve enterprise problems and they can use our real-time aggregator to do that so that's really you know where we want to get to and i want to try and accelerate that path as much as possible and maybe moving away from corporate treasury for a little bit uh, are there any major fintech trends that you're excited to see play out uh, over the next three to five years yeah i think something i find very interesting which is talent i see this massive shift that is, uh, it's already happening, which is, you know, and you know, I think it was sort of this period where you come out of university or MBA and it was being, you know, a trader or an investment banker. Then I think it went to like management consulting and startups. And now I think fintechs may be the, the new thing. But, you know, I think the banks, I think, are going to find it very challenging now to attract top talent. I think it's become less sexy to work at the banks. I think now you see fintech quite de-risked and also a lot of capital we can actually afford to pay for some of these uh, these bankers as well and you know people i think starting to see that you know that you're getting maybe the near the comfort you can get in a bank but with all the upside of a startup the excitement the transformation the agility the speed to be in a fintech so, you know, obviously people I speak to, I mean, you just start starting to see now the the lure of the bank, I think is starting to really uh, falter. So I do really see over the next three to five years, the banks will become more of that sort of back infrastructure. And yeah, we saw it in you know, all, all sorts of industries, right? Like even like travel industry, and all these sorts of things, right? Well, the digital kind of uh, front ends took over and then, you know, sort of just the every you know an aggregated and had this sort of back-end regulated infrastructure and I, I see the banks going the same way just a you know regulated infrastructure that's know your client kyc and accounting and i think you're going to get all the great talent now join the fintechs and yeah i don't know if this is a, <laughs> a little bit too provocative of you or not but i think yeah i so if you really think that that fintechs are going to really uh, accelerate and i think that's probably as well one of the big reasons there's so much capital being invested into fintechs now because that acceleration i think is just uh, yeah it's really uh, it's really going fast now just anecdotally i have to agree with you i have a friend who just last month left goldman for capchase uh, and i have obviously a number of classmates that are interested in fintech and would probably maybe 10 years back have been great candidates for banks uh, but are just not looking to go there right now so i've definitely seen that trend as well the next round is a rapid fire round uh, we aim to get answers in about 10 seconds or less are you ready to go? Okay, yeah, I'll try my best. Let's do it. So what is your favorite hobby? Skiing. What subject were you best at in school? I would say art. Nice. Uh, that explains a little bit about the art and finance uh, work you had done. What was your favorite part about consulting? Um, I think the probably the adventure or the sort of pioneering nature of it. And your least favorite part about consulting? <laughs> Doing expenses. <laughs> <laughs> that I think has gotten streamlined at least uh, over the past maybe 10 years. Okay. <laughs> and last question, you can take a little bit more time on this one. 
what advice would you give your younger self? Yeah, that's a, it's always a difficult one. I would say, yeah, I think I would say, you know, life's for living. Don't be too worried about what people think or worrying about things. Just uh, be in the moment and live life and enjoy it. Love it. I think that's probably a perfect place to end it. So, Philip, thank you so much for joining us on the call. Uh, it was great to hear from you and uh, best of luck moving forward. Yeah, thank you so much for the time. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Medium, and Twitter at Wharton FinTech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I would also like to thank our editor, Raphael Austria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Anirudh Singh.